Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Rami Kayat, Medical Director of the newly revived Sleep Center at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Kayat also holds an appointment at The Ohio State University, where he continues to conduct research. Dr. Kayat's research includes the impact of sleep disorders on the outcomes of patients with heart failure, and he has recently published a few articles about sleep apnea in chest. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kayat. Thank you very, very much for having me, Dr. Kosla, and, and thanks to the ASM for putting this uh, platform on uh, for, for our clinicians. Thank you. Congratulations on your new role at UC Irvine. How has that experience been for you? Are you commuting between California and Ohio, or how does that work? No, you know, I, I think that's one of the you know benefits of COVID now, that that uh, the trip now is, is a lot less uh, <laughs> than it used to be before. You could do so much uh, online. And my role at the Ohio State University right now is limited to uh, a research study, a large multi-site research study that looks at treating patients with heart failure and central sleep apnea with low flow oxygen. And I have a few other projects that I can work with my collaborators online. I had been uh, in the period leading up to COVID going back perhaps every six, eight weeks. But because it's mostly related to research, it's quite doable, obviously. Well, and most of your research focuses on central sleep apnea, which as you know, of course, most of our colleagues know is less common than obstructive sleep apnea, but isn't always as straightforward to treat. I mean, we know that central sleep apnea is common in patients with heart failure, um, but it's often unrecognized. So why do you think that is? Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a loaded question, I will say. Um, a part of the answer is the difficulty in diagnosing it and the uh, lack of maybe perhaps consistent approach to uh, recognizing this on a sleep study. But more importantly, it's because we really don't test routinely for sleep apnea and heart failure patients. This has been an ongoing debate and issue and a matter of uh, research for for many investigators in the field, it's been, if you will, like a catch-22 because the randomized control trials have not shown a significant effect uh, on heart function from treating central sleep apnea that the foundations and the professional organizations and Medicare do not necessarily recommend routine testing for heart failure patients. So therefore, we do miss patients with both obstructive and central sleep apnea uh, because we don't test heart failure patients routinely. We do test, obviously, when there is high pretest probability or some symptoms. Uh, and to that effect, central sleep apnea doesn't have uh, a well-recognized set of symptoms that are distinct from those related to heart failure. For example, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, we know is associated with snoring, sleepiness, multiple awakenings, bed partners being aware and all that. In central sleep apnea, it's a much more subtle disease, especially as far as presentation. The patient may have, you know, one or two awakenings at night, but the symptom of fatigue is not unique to sleep disorders. It is also attached to heart failure symptoms. So these patients may report fatigue. People assume it's related to the low cardiac output. Uh, So there isn't really... uh, 
you know, uh, a clear cut presenting symptom or a case finding approach, if you will, to look for patients with high pretest probability. So we do miss quite a bit of these patients. Well, it's funny that you say that because I, I also feel like there's been a lot of new information about central sleep apnea over the last handful of years. So without getting into all of the serve HF data, what is key for sleep physicians to be aware of? So for uh, when you're considering central sleep apnea, it is important to keep in mind that it is most present in patients with heart failure and specifically those with low cardiac output. Sometimes we associate that in our minds with patients, particularly with low ejection fraction. I mean, you can have low cardiac output and normal ejection fraction, such as, such as patients with um, atrial fibrillation or, uh, you know, they call them now uh, borderline or in between low ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction. So patients with heart problems would be at higher risk for central sleep apnea. And central sleep apnea may not have a specific set of, of symptoms beyond fatigue and sleep disruption. And sometimes they would have a chain stokes breathing pattern reported you know, during restful wakefulness or during exercise, but there isn't really a clear cut set of symptoms that distinguish it. So, uh, um, so to look for it in patients with, with heart failure uh, and uh, to suspect it in people with excessive fatigue is, is probably uh, the, the two main things. Another thing is the uh, research studies suggest that it's more common in men who are older and not particularly overweight who have heart failure. So that kind of starts defining that syndrome of someone walks into your office uh, who's not overweight, but maybe older male with known cardiac disease that could be a candidate for having central sleep apnea. So do you have a an approach for your patients with central sleep apnea? Yeah, I mean, th this has been, uh, we suggest, you know, practicing uh, or, or take care of these patients within the context of sleep heart programs or, or, or practices that are aware that they are seeing large percentage of heart failure patients. Now, for the general sleep practitioner, you just have to be aware of your patient's history, obviously. And if the patient uh, presents with known cardiac dysfunction, history of heart failure hospitalization, or that older male perhaps with uh, history of any cardiac pathology like coronary disease, MI, uh, pacemaker, they have a defibrillator or something like that that makes you suspicious that this is a patient with cardiac disease, you may just make a mental note or a note in that chart that I am considering central sleep apnea in this patient who is presenting with fatigue. You know, and, and, and that uh, will not necessarily, you know, uh, give us access to the patient who doesn't present to us, obviously. A lot of patients, right. like I said, do not come to us because they think their symptoms are related to heart failure. Those we may not get to till we develop a systematic approach to them, but at least in our practice, when we talk to our cardiology colleagues, we have to educate them that the patient may not present with symptoms beyond those related to heart failure, but they may still have significant sleep disordered breathing. So it's really good that you're reaching out to really improve the awareness, I suppose, about this and, and really hone those clinical skills. But 
Do you get to the point where you then have to decide, you know, should we treat it? And how do you make that decision? I mean, do you base it on mild, moderate, severe? What's your diagnostic algorithm and then treatment algorithm for how do we even treat central sleep apnea now? Yeah. So there is quite a bit of, uh, you know, debate and discussion in the field and, and, you know, within the uh, auspices of the American Academy and and other organizations as to, uh, you know, who is really at risk from central sleep apnea, how much central sleep apnea should you have? Uh, is mild obstru- is central sleep apnea you know equivalent to mild obstructive and all that? So there, there, these questions we don't have right now evidence based approach to addressing. However, um, uh, most uh, experts in the field come at it from the concept of hypoxia burden, and that's almost how you also could approach obstructive sleep apnea. So you know when you look at you know, we, we all, uh, you know, Sima, you and I and others, uh, other, other sleep physicians in our practice, we may see mild sleep apnea and say, oh, yeah, but the patient is desaturating a lot. Or, or we see, you know, moderate, but the patient doesn't really have much desaturation. So we may say that uh, they're hypoxia burden. Now, there are ways to measure this and, 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 and you know, uh, mathematically uh, kind of conceptualize it. But at least you can say that the patient has significant uh, uh, desaturation uh, index, uh, like 4% index, or they hypoxic a lot, you know, you may want to treat it. In general, I, I think, and, and, and I think most people will agree, most experts in the field in central sleep apnea will agree that anything in the mild range probably doesn't warrant specific treatment approach unless, you know, it's symptomatic uh, in, in the senses that are very sleepy or, or very fatigued or uh, perhaps they have very, very severe heart failure or something, or it would be more or less as a treatment trial. Uh, but for patients who aren't specifically bothered, who just kind of fell into this, uh, you know, by virtue of like a questionnaire or a sleep study, and we came across mild central sleep apnea with an index of 15 or less without pronounced hypoxia or desaturation, you, maybe that's a category of patients you may not necessarily uh, you know, you may you, you may ask him to sit out, you know, the treatment for now because there isn't really, um, it, you know, the, the treatment decision is uh, is complicated, let's say, and, and the benefit would not be too obvious. For those who have moderate to severe uh, or have significant hypoxia or significant concomitant cardiac disease, uh, like, for example, atrial fibrillation, where ablation is being uh, considered or someone with a very low ejection fraction uh, and you think may benefit from treatment, uh, or someone uh, who has very uh, significant symptoms of uh, low cardiac output and fatigue, you may want to offer a a treatment trial. And in these patients, you're going to ask me next, I'm sure, well, how do you treat them? (laughs) <laughs> you also instructed me to avoid the serve HF, but you know it's capable to not. <laughs> it's, hard, uh, it's hard to avoid serve HF. Yeah, to be it, fair. <laughs> it is. It is. You know when you talk about central apnea, but you know for sure that if they have low ejection fraction, you cannot use serve ASV. So so that's out. Um, and I think most practitioners right now, uh, if the ejection fraction is normal, you're you're okay using ASV. Most of us tend to try CPAP. If CPAP eliminates the central sleep apnea demonstrably on a, on a PSG and a titration night, then we got a device to treat it. Uh, 
if we were able to eliminate it, then we have now, uh, you know, a device, whether it's CPAP in a patient with uh, uh, normal or low ejection fraction, they can use CPAP. If their patient has a low ejection fraction, they may not use ASV. If they have normal ejection fraction, they are okay to use ASV for central sleep apnea. Um, I know some practitioners are very, very concerned about coming near ASV when you use the word central sleep apnea, but CERV-HF did not show that there is danger in using ASV in patients with preserved ejection fraction. It is specific. The warnings are specific to those with low ejection fraction. So anyone else can use uh, CPAP or ASV. And those with low ejection fraction are allowed to use CPAP only. So that these are the distinctions. So we will titrate them and see if we were able to control the central apnea and, uh, you know, with either device, you know, again, notwithstanding the, or, or, or with respect to the warnings, then that is the treatment device that we would use. Um, I will mention here uh, that there is now an FDA approved therapy which is uh, Remedy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, venous phrenic uh, nerve stimulation. So that's an implantable device that, that is implanted by the electrophysiologist. It's similar to a pacemaker. It goes uh, uh, typically you know, in the kind of right uh, subclavicular area, and uh, the electrophysiologist places the lead uh, through the veins, uh, all the way adjacent to a small, all the way to a small vein adjacent to the phrenic nerve, and then uh, usually you know we're targeting the left phrenic nerve, and uh, but, but it can be done on the right, and uh, we stimulate uh, uh, the hemidiaphragm, and that entrains the other hemidiaphragm. So when the patient has central sleep apnea and they're asleep, the uh, phrenic nerve stimulator will breathe for them and eliminate the central apnea. So that this is an FDA-approved therapy that is safe in patients with heart failure of all ejection fractions. And it's a good option for those, for example, who have central sleep apnea with low ejection fraction who are not candidate for ASV, for example, and potentially didn't respond to CPAP or not interested in mask-based therapy. So, so this is... Uh, a good treatment option that became available to us just in the past couple of years, really. Yeah, I think I have I have one gentleman that is um, on route. He's sort of in the process of having it done, and it's been really kind of interesting to learn more about it. And so, you know, I'll have to I'll have to update you when I, <laughs> when I see that. how yeah. he does when he yeah. when he finally has it implanted. Yeah. You know, you hinted at this earlier, but what are the issues with the diagnosis of central sleep apnea? Yeah, that's, that's, I think, really the heart of it, uh, because, um, you know, I've, I've had the, you know, privilege of, of being in, you know, in, in meetings and committees and discussions with, you know, many experts in the field and, and all that. And uh, every time I, I remember vividly one, one discussion, we had, uh, you know, three experts in the field and, you know, and, and my humble self, we were in a meeting, uh, you know, advising uh, industry one time and, uh, you know, we were looking at some examples of how would you score this kind of thing? 
So, uh, and, and these are names that are probably familiar to anyone who's on the, you know, podcast, uh, you know, the other people, obviously, and, and we would be one of us, one of the group would say, oh, this is a central hypopnea. The other person will say, no, no, this is an obstructive hypopnea. Right. The third person will say, this is, uh, no, 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 this is a central apnea because of, you know, this and that. So really when you come down to it and, and you break down an event, I mean, and, and we, you know, experts in the field struggle, imagine, you know, how our technologists do when they look, you know, at numerous sleep studies. So, uh, so when, when you, you know, pause to, to, to break down an event, you have, for example, maybe two or three obstructive breath at the end of what looks like a central event. There may be some flow limitation, you know, inside it. There may be some paradoxical breathing at the end of it. But it's central. Otherwise, some people will call it obstructive. Some people call mm-hmm. it call it central. Uh, the academy did a great job trying to come up with something, and it's you know the best we have. But but frankly, it's not good enough. So uh, as uh, you know, we were talking about uh, remedy or the trans uh, venous uh, phrenic nerve stimulation. So I was part of the pivotal trial for that uh, when I was full time at Ohio State, and you know, and I continued for a while. Uh, colleagues would send me sleep studies and and sometimes patients would travel you know across the country to to be implanted for this and and I would look at a PSG and you know that that is interpreted as central apnea and when I get the raw data and I would look there to examining the events I would sometimes disagree that this is not central these were mm. and this patient is not so the truth is right now today uh, we do not have adequate polysomnographic tools to distinguish the predominantly central phenotype from the predominantly obstructive phenotype. You know, of course, uh, and, and many hopefully listening to us are familiar with the great work being done, uh, uh, you know, by Dr. Wellman's group at, at Harvard and other places to try to help us develop these polysomnographic tools. So when, it, when a, an event looks obstructive, is it really fully obstructive or their predominant central, you know, uh, underlying endotype, we call it, or the physiology is actually central. So right now for the practicing, you know, uh, sleep physician, you have to follow the academy's criteria. And, you know, we go by more than 50% of the events. So you you do fall into a dilemma when you have someone who has like, say, 51% or 52% of their events being, say, central and 49 or 48 being obstructive. And we all know about night-to-night variability. So if you test them on another night, they may actually have more of this rather than that. So that overlap between obstructive and central is really pronounced. It's a significant portion of central sleep apnea. I have some obstructive physiology. And that brings me back to the other question you asked me about the treatment is that's why I like to put these people in the sleep lab and try CPAP on them. Mm -hmm. So from practical standpoint, if you are able to eliminate the events, you know, CPAP can eliminate predominantly central physiology-based events uh, or obstructive events. But if you are able to eliminate with CPAP, then you at least have something to go on and use uh, based on that titration study. So, So it may have like that diagnostic value, if you will, that maybe the study should. So when I issue these reports, I, I sometimes say, patient has predominantly central sleep apnea or patient has a mixed sleep disordered breathing with both obstructive and central component so that I alert my colleagues to the fact that this patient may need positive pressure therapy Mm -hmm. because they have significant obstructive. So I don't follow 
specifically the 50-50, you know, criteria. Uh, if I felt that uh, there is more pronounced uh, component of one or the other or both are, are separate, you know, entities. But again, it's hard for me to advise my colleagues on this because it's more of a, you know, expertise-based approach than it is uh, something you can actually quantify. But I, I would tell the clinicians that, you know, be aware that uh, these two disorders may coexist and, and, and you have to look for uh, evidence of upper airway uh, pathology. And if that's pronounced, then you know your patient will require CPAP, so they may not benefit, for example, from the Remedy device, mm. which is specific for predominantly central events. That's a good point. So I've asked this question at conferences before, and, and other people have asked this question, and, and I've always really listened to the answer. And I don't know that it's been the same answer every time, but tell me about why central sleep apnea gets worse in the supine position. Yeah, it's a very good question. Of course, uh, there are, I mean, I, I will say there are more than speculations, but they're not quite, uh, you know, fully understood. But uh, there's been emerging data uh, over the past maybe 30, 40 years, actually, from various physiologic studies in animals and humans. But if you take, uh, uh, let's say, a human and, and, and put him in the supine position for several hours, there is um, redistribution of body fluids and and that uh, there is some migration of that fluid from the lower extremities into the torso and the neck and uh, let's say this patient is a heart failure patient so there would be uh, more uh, interstitial venous congestion or or uh, engorgement with this uh, fluid redistribution into the lungs uh, so one of the things that happens, you know, and I wish you told me, I could have brought a set of slides, but it's a podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, well, you but, can just pretend that you have them. Yes, uh, you, could, <laughs> you, you guys watch me gesticulating here. and uh, But as it gets to the lungs uh, and, and with that swelling of the interstitial uh, space, there's activation of, of certain receptors called the J receptors kind of embedded in that, in that space. And these are afferent. Uh, directly to the respiratory control centers and result in stimulation of the respiratory rate. So then the patient starts hyperventilating when that, uh, uh, you know, pulmonary interstitial venous congestion increases due to the fluid distribution. With that hyperventilation, then the patient may cross the apnea threshold. And I think most sleep physicians are familiar with what that is. It's we, we, when the patient hyperventilates, they drop their CO2 readily below the apnea threshold and develop these central events. So that's one of the things that happens. Uh, other times too, that fluid redistribution may affect also the neck. And uh, when, the, uh, when there is a little bit of a cervical venous congestion, that also affects the patency of the upper airway and may not be uh, severe enough to create obstructive events, but maybe severe enough to stimulate the breathing and increase the respiratory rate or the respiratory drive. The basic mechanism of central sleep apnea, especially in, in heart failure and, and kidney patients, renal patients, is really hyperventilation. It's not hypoventilation. It's patients who actually ventilate a lot more during sleep. And, you know, when you put entitled CO2 or transcutaneous CO2 on them, you're often struck that their CO2 runs in the 30s. They're not forced even during these events. And, and, you know, those of us who work in this space like to say that 
this is, or, or we can classify these things as hypocapnic central sleep apnea or central sleep apnea due to increased ventilatory drive, as opposed to, you know, perhaps hypercapnic, you know, breathing disorders such as obesity, hypoventilation and all that, uh, where there are, you know, or, or opiates based, you know, uh, this is more of hyperventilation based. So, so in summary, the, the redistribution of fluids into the torso, into the lungs, to the thoracic space and the neck stimulates the breathing uh, system and, and creates hyperventilation and, and decrease in, in tidal or, or in, in CO2 below the apnea threshold, uh, producing uh, uh, temporary pauses or, or central apneas. And then the uh, CO2 builds up quickly and the patient has to hyperventilate and they start cycling into this chain stokes pattern. So it sounds like a lot of your patients have heart failure, but I'm, yes. I'm wondering about central sleep apnea in a patient who doesn't have heart failure. You know, do you, is that someone that you routinely image their brain or what is your approach to that patient? That's an excellent question. So, you know, and I, and I agonize, I'm, I'm agonizing on, on, you know, uh, regarding a few of these patients right <laughs> now, actually. In fact, I mean, uh, you know, th this, uh, you know, you will not believe it, but I, I was delayed a few minutes to, to, to this, you know, podcast because I was seeing this 83-year-old man <clears throat> who does have a pacemaker, but has a normal ejection fraction and never been hospitalized for heart failure. But he has really severe periodic breathing and central sleep apnea. Ooh. I will say, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, so uh, I would say that, uh, you know, we have to approach it as low cardiac output and normal cardiac output versus low ejection fraction and high ejection fraction. So a patient, for example, may have diastolic dysfunction or perhaps a little bit of left ventricular hypertrophy and develops a fib, and then they may end up in a low cardiac output state that promotes central sleep apnea. When you do an echo on them, they do not have low ejection fraction and are not classified as you know, heart failure per se, but they in a low cardiac output state. So notwithstanding this category of patients who have low cardiac output state and or heart failure, if I come across, and that's the other one I'm agonizing over now, is I have this, I think he's a 30-some-year-old who uh, had, you know, classic central sleep apnea on, on a sleep study and has no cardiac pathology and he's asymptomatic, you know, from cardiac standpoint, no more ejection fraction and echocardiogram. And I am sending him for MRI looking for Bud Chieri. So those ones who are relatively younger and uh, perhaps, have, perhaps have like a like central with some obstructive pathology and, and younger people and a ruled out cardiac disease, I will try to image, you know, their brain specifically looking for this uh, pathology for, for the butt carry. But, um, I, you know, I'm not convinced that, you know, someone who's asymptomatic is going to have like this devastating stroke that causes, you know, sleep apnea. Mm. But, uh, but I think I'd be looking for, you know, these kind of congenital malformations mostly which you and I probably, I, I, I'm sure that, you know, any, any person, any sleep physician who've been practiced for, you know, several years has come across one maybe or so of these Bud Chiari malformations. I, I have one Chiari. And it was one, interesting yeah. because once he was decompressed, the central component went away and the, now I just treat him for regular old destructive. Yeah. yeah and, and <laughs> I haven't had it that, that, you know, that, you know, clear cut. I, you know, uh, had a couple patients over the years and you know, they're on PEP, you know, on mass-based devices. 
despite the, the decompression. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we all have seen patients, however, who are elderly who do have strokes and don't have, you know, explicit cardiac pathology. So, you know, what someone in the audience may say, well, I, I disagree with you uh, because I do have patients who have no cardiac disease and have, you know, CNS pathology and have central sleep apnea. And I think on a case by case, yes, I agree that mm. some of these exist and you may image them, but it's unlikely you're going to diagnose stroke that you would do something about, uh, you know, based on that. But I think, you know, all within the clinical context, if they have some neurodeficit or something, obviously brain imaging looking for strokes would be indicated. I think that, you know, the, the, the one thing I would point out uh, is to affect the respiratory control centers to produce central sleep. Right. would have to have brain stem, you know, strokes that would have to have some significant, you know, other, you know, symptomatology. So, no, those are all really good points. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Kayette about a new trial he's involved with studying the impact of oxygen therapy on patients with heart failure. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 2020 has taught us a lot about the value of togetherness, and the AASM is here to support you throughout your sleep medicine career. From advocacy to education, we offer tools and resources you need to thrive, especially now in this challenging time. Join or renew your AASM membership before December 31st, and you'll have a chance to win some great prizes. Learn more at aasm.org membership. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. I'm here with Dr. Rami Kayat, Medical Director at the University of California, Irvine Health Sleep Disorders Center. You're working on a long-term trial involving oxygen therapy for patients with heart failure and central sleep apnea. Tell me about that. Well, so this uh, particular uh, trial, you know, we're obviously very excited about it. It, it does, um, it, you know, for, for one, uh, it has many of the, uh, you know, almost like really many of the active programs that do deal with heart failure and, and, and sleep apnea combined. But the purpose of it is to try to address um, a therapy that did have uh, did show some initial promise, but never was really pursued in a randomized controlled trial for this particular population. So, you know, we were discussing you and I earlier that after HF, this population of patients who have uh, a heart failure with low ejection fraction don't really have. Um, other than the implantable remedy, don't have other treatment options. So remedy obviously is, is a potentially an effective treatment option for these patients, but not everyone is a candidate for it for, for various reasons. So what else can we offer these patients? Of course, you know, some of them respond to CPAP, some of them don't. And we've, um, in recent years, have been dealing and, and, and becoming more aware of why, of how uh, patients don't really tolerate mask-based therapies too well and, and for too long. So oxygen has been used uh, for central sleep apnea in small, uh, sometimes randomized, sometimes observational clinical trials, and it showed some promise. It, it was able to eliminate the central events and, uh, and uh, improve the breathing pattern, the sleep quality in some of these studies. So this trial uh, got finally uh, approved by NIH and it took a while to get it set up. It's a multi-site clinical trial that, that includes about 50 sites that will enroll patients with 
heart failure and low ejection fraction, and central sleep apnea of, of moderate to severe range. And patients will be randomized to low flow oxygen, you know, not to exceed about four liters uh, per minute uh, to be used, you know, obviously during sleep only or, or nocturnal uh, versus control. And we'll look at the effect of this treatment on, on cardiac specific outcomes, you know, such as mortality and readmission. So what is the mechanistic basis behind oxygen? I mean, what components of central sleep apnea will the oxygen target? Um, good question. So uh, the uh, oxygen in general is known to, or, or maybe like, let me backtrack a little bit. So uh, as you know, the respiratory control center includes a central chemoreceptor and a, uh, a set of, of, of uh controllers called the peripheral chemoreceptors located at the aortic bifurcation. These peripheral chemoreceptors are very sensitive to decreases in oxygen. And when there are fluctuations in the oxygen, they mount really significant increase in the respiratory drive and the patient uh, starts hyperventilating. So when we uh, deliver oxygen in, in, in certain concentrations, the uh, sensitivity or, or this hyper, this tendency to hyperventilate is decreased. Like I was mentioning, hmm. your central sleep apnea in heart failure patients is a disorder of hyperventilation, not hypoventilation. So when we deliver that oxygen, we decrease the respiratory drive slightly and uh, decrease this tendency to hyperventilating. Also, interestingly, these particular receptors at the aortic bifurcation are also involved in the sympathetic output and. Uh, Delivering oxygen, uh, again, in, in a certain concentration can decrease the sympathetic tone in general in the body, which, you know, is, is presumed to be beneficial in patients with low ejection fraction. So these are possibly the two main, you know, categories of benefits or, or potential benefits or, or mechanistic basis for the response to oxygen. So I don't know if you can tell me this yet then. You know, I was thinking about what we could expect as an outcome from this. Um, so, you know, um, the small studies that have been done over the past maybe, you know, two or three decades have shown some decrease in the AHI, in the frequency of events. You know, certainly you would expect the hypoxia to decrease, the desaturations to, to decrease. Um, now, interestingly, this particular trial is, is mostly in, in the category of pragmatic trials. So it's looking at hardcore clinical outcomes, basically. It's just, is it really, is this treatment decreasing readmissions and mortality? So we're not even necessarily repeating the sleep studies to see how the oxygen, I mean, some uh, subset of patients will have their sleep studies repeated to look at the effect of oxygen on, you know, physiologically. But the, the main purpose of pragmatic trials is to show uh, an outcome. So if the uh, treatment shows an improved clinical, clinically relevant outcome, such as readmissions and mortality, then, you know, uh, you know, third-party payers would be willing to support it and, 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 and offer it to these patients. So that is what we would, what we're expecting in that trial. Physiologically, maybe you would expect improved AHI, but what we're trying to do here is to show that treatment of central sleep apnea using oxygen will improve cardiac-specific outcomes. 
So there were some studies, though, that showed negative outcomes with oxygen and heart failure due to uh, more oxidative stress. What are your thoughts on that? So these, there were a few, uh, uh, you know, that were done in specific settings and ended up using a higher concentration of oxygen. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, the uh, name of the trial is low flow oxygen. And, and we have specific safeguards as to not exceed, you know, four liters per minute. And we tried to get by by delivering lower oxygen concentrations to most patients even. But um, we, in fact, in, in the first iteration of that trial, we uh, were sending patients with uh, uh, oximetry, uh, uh, you know, devices, recorders to actually uh, Bluetooth base to uh, transmit that to make sure they're not getting too much oxygen. And we have ways to uh, query the devices too. But basically at low concentration, there has not been evidence of harm demonstrated in any study. So that's specifically why the trial addresses low flow oxygen, not, you know, any higher. Uh, than so you mentioned that you could query the devices. Is that, is there a way then that you can make sure that people are using their oxygen? I mean, I just kind of leave it up to their self-report when I ask yeah. them, are you using your oxygen? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I can sort of take it and run. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is this is interesting. This is what we do in clinical practice thus far, but apparently the ability to query the oxygen device, you know, the technology exists. And uh, when we first saw, uh, you know, I will credit Dr. Susan Redline, who's, uh, you know, one of the national leaders of the trial uh, and was, you know, had her, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit of focus on, on the technological aspects of this. And, you know, in early discussions with other experts and industry, we, we decided that, look, if, if sleep doctors are going to use this, we really like to, to download things. <laughs> That's <laughs> <You know>? true. <laughs> we, we, and, and also, I mean, we recognize how important it is to download things. So uh, so these devices are actually equipped uh, with, you know, similar technology like modem-based uh, uh, upload to the cloud. And, and we can query that and tell that it was on a patient, you know, uh, for a period of time and, and was used, you know, for that period of time. Uh, so, so we can tell, and, and there is, you know, as, as this gets rolled over, you know, the trial is successful and this becomes a clinical device, you know, it, obviously you can see what will happen next. It'll be an app and it'll be other things too, but uh, sure. at least right now it is something we can query and, and confirm the patient's usage and adherence and all that. So I, I saw in the entry criteria for the the trial that hypoxic people are excluded. So when I'm when I'm sitting there with my clinical hat on and sort of my very everyday real hat on, if if they're not hypoxic, how do you get their oxygen covered by insurance? Uh, good question. So because this is a randomized controlled trial, everything is covered by the study itself. Uh, and, and that's exactly why you need a trial, you know, because if it were to be covered by insurance, you know, most people probably would end up using it for patients who, for example, didn't benefit from CPAP or couldn't talk. Right. But, in you know, in our practice, a lot of these patients who have central sleep apnea do not qualify for oxygen because they don't spend more than five or, you know, whatever the Medicare criteria, you know, minutes before uh, below uh, 87%. But they do DSAT, you know, maybe they have 4 or 5% DSAT index, 6%, so that has physiological impact, but mm -hmm. doesn't go below 87, you know, the one size uh, fit all of Medicare. So that's exactly what the trial will achieve. If the trial is positive, 
then third-party payers will cover uh, oxygen for this specific population. So but right now, it's not covered. You have to wait. <laughs> like yes. have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to wait because it's not covered right now. So, so yeah. do you think this will change then how we currently treat central sleep apnea? You know, the hope is we, we will have at least one other valid treatment option that is, you know, based on a clinical trial. Because right now, you know, the only uh, FDA-approved therapy for central sleep apnea is the implantable phrenic nerve stimulator. And it only in the trial only enrolled a small number of heart failure patients. And we know in our practice that the majority of central sleep apnea patients we see have heart failure. So, so it is a major gap, actually, in, uh, in care. And, and this will add, you know, another treatment option, you know, to our armamentarium as we approach these patients and then we can offer them some therapy. Is there anything else that you'd like our sleep medicine colleagues to know? Um, you know, not, you know, but, but if, if I may just summarize the, just a couple points regarding how, uh, you know, we're not doing systematic uh, search or, or case finding in these patients. So all I would say is be on the lookout and, you know, Let's think about central sleep apnea, especially when we send someone to the sleep lab, because, uh, you know, sometimes we even miss the presence of a significant central component uh, in, in these patients. And, you know, consider the available therapies for it, because central sleep apnea, there is, there is a, a strong evidence that it is harmful in patients with heart failure, it is associated with sympathetic activation, intermittent hypoxia, oxidative stress. So, there is no reason to think that we can, you know, ignore uh, central sleep apnea, you know, after serve HF and not treat it. We really have, when we see it, we have to think about treating it. And I say this, Sima, because I have over the past few years seen some patients who would have like AHI of 30 or 40, predominantly central sleep apnea, and some sleep physicians have, have chosen not to treat them or mm. offer therapy. And I think that's not appropriate because, you know, at this range with this degree of hypoxia, we do have to think of, you know, maybe CPAP, supplemental oxygen or right. implantable devices or positional therapy or something, you know, to, to, to at least, you know, address that possibility. So I would say don't ignore it at least. <laughs> that's, a, that's probably a pretty good take-home lesson. Well, thank you, Dr. Kayat, for talking with us about your very important work. I think there's a lot of valuable information here for our sleep medicine colleagues, and I look forward to seeing the outcomes of the LOFT trial. So if our colleagues would like more information about this trial, uh, who should they call? Um, you know, uh, feel free to email me at, and I don't know if you're able to share that like uh, visually, but it is Rami, R-A-M-I dot K-H-A-Y-A-T at OSUMC, Ohio State University Medical Center.edu. Uh, and, and they can con contact us potentially through you guys too, hopefully. Um, and uh, or any other colleague or partner who's uh, involved in the trial that they've heard of. Uh, we are going to uh, hopefully be presenting in the American Academy and other venues as well. And uh, this is, like I said, is a randomized controlled trial. So the site, you know, will participate as a, you know, participating research site right now as it is not available. That's very cool. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Dr. Kuslein. Thank you to the ASM for uh, allowing me this opportunity. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 
For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.